Our epistle lesson this morning comes to us uh, from Paul's letters to, letter to the Romans, chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. 1 through 10, all right? Here we go. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of one in the authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you should pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe tax, pay tax. If you owe revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves one another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. We started a new series last week called Uncommon Good. If you missed our first week about finding common ground, the crux of the sermon was simple. If you took anything away from last week, I hope it was this praise. Jesus over everything. In this series, we're talking about our faith in relation to government and politics. And you might say, why are you talking about that stuff in the church? Well, because Jesus and Paul had a lot to say on these topics. And if you read the New Testament's view on government and politics, it pretty much boils down to that phrase, Jesus over everything. Our lens and our agenda are very transparent. We make no apologies uh, for preaching uh, sermons that are not politically partisan. We do not push the agenda of any one group at this church or as preachers in these services. Uh, for us, it's very simple. Jesus over everything. And so in that spirit, I would like for us to consider this morning the relationship between God and country. We pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. In college, I had this great pair of white sneakers that had the American flag on either side of them. I wore them every 4th of July, Memorial Day, Martin Luther King Day, Veterans Day, any holiday where we were celebrating various aspects of our country. Not so much Labor Day, but you get the point. My uh, karaoke song of choice has always been Toby Keith's Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue. You, you, perhaps it's also known as the Angry American Song. 
I have sung that song in, in more places than I probably should admit. I, I think The West Wing is one of my all-time favorite shows because in a lot of ways, it's a celebration of how democracy works and how the ideals of our country are played out in real time. I paint my face red, white, and blue for the World Cup every four years. I proposed to my wife on the 4th of July in 2012. And now every year we say that people are shooting off fireworks to celebrate the, the memory of our engagement. The thing I'm most jealous about from my best friend, Levi, is that his birthday is on Independence Day. If I hadn't gone into pastoral ministry, I'd have either ended up as an army chaplain or a cruise ship entertainer. I know those are very different professions, but I'm just thinking about the, the limited skill sets I have and where they might be useful. Suffice it to say, I love our country, and I'm grateful to live here. Uh, I am thankful for the countless men and women who have fought and died so that we can have the privileges we do, the freedoms we have. I don't think there are many finer words outside of Scripture than this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I like how the character Angelica Schuyler said it in the Broadway musical Hamilton, and when I meet Thomas Jefferson, I'm compelling to include women in this equal. I can safely say that I will probably never write anything more long-lasting and impactful than Francis Bellamy, who penned the words, I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, which obviously was amended in 1923 to add the words, of the United States of America, and again in 1954 to add the words, under God. And even saying all of that, my patriotism and my dedication to our country take second place in the order of importance and authority of loyalties in my life. That might be a strange thing to hear if you love our country the way I do, but that's what it means to claim Jesus over everything. It can't be Jesus over some things. Even though my devotion to our country goes well beyond just rooting for our teams in the Olympics, my decision to follow Christ causes me to place God as my primary allegiance. The demand of the Bible and our Christian tradition is that it all starts with Jesus. I'm grateful for the rarity that these two allegiances are obviously at odds in our everyday life. However, if and when they do disagree, I have to side with God over country. Though they often work in concert, they are not one and the same. And I think that's what Paul is trying to help the Romans understand in this section of the letter we just read. It's an odd section. It's a strange text. In fact, it's one of the few parts of the New Testament that is excluded from the lectionary entirely. If you grew up going to a church that preaches from and reads the lectionary every week, all four passages, you would go your entire life never hearing this scripture read during worship. My guess is it was left out because in many ways it sounds so 
dissimilar from the rest of the letter and really from almost everything Paul writes. Or perhaps the lectionary compilers assumed that there wouldn't be too many preachers offering sermons about the relationship between faith and the state. But here we are, searching for common ground in an uncommon text. And I think Paul is trying to help these early Christians in the new church in Rome, just as is helping us today realize that there can be a healthy relationship between your faith and your country, that these two institutions can coexist. But at the end of this section, and when this chapter is read within the totality of Paul's writings, it's clear that he does not think they have equal authority. Paul is writing uh, to people who are in the heart of the largest empire that has ever existed up until this moment in history. The Roman government was larger than the Assyrians and the Persians and anybody else that came before them. They had this huge political system with laws and armies and civic organizations, and the Romans did many great things. I think when we often consider the, the Roman Empire in worship or when we read the Bible in a religious context, we always think of them as the bad guys because they crucified Jesus or because they persecuted the early church. And both of those things are true. But take any Western civilizations class and you'll realize just how much of our world is a product of the Roman Empire, roads, architecture, systems of government, and much more. Trace their origins back to Rome. So the Romans were not all bad people, and the government itself wasn't some terribly oppressive regime to everyone. Even up to this point, Christians had not yet been, been persecuted by the Roman authorities. They might not love this new pseudo-Jewish movement as it saw it, but it wasn't until a decade after Paul wrote the letter to the Romans that Nero burned down the city and blamed the Christians. And so if Paul had written this letter in the 70s rather than the 50s, perhaps he would have said things a bit differently. But instead, he writes this. It's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of matters of conscience. Pay taxes for your authorities are God's servants. When you give their full time to governing, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This word from Paul is not an endorsement of every law in the Roman legal codex. It is not a directive to say you should blindly obey whatever you're told. But it is, on the one hand, an affirmation that the government of a country can be a good and a useful thing. But it's also Paul's attempt to protect a young Christian movement. The Roman emperor was already coming down hard on the people who refused to pay their taxes, and Christians were split on whether they should pay taxes or not. And the last thing Paul wants is to give the authorities a reason to harass this young church. So in the same vein as Jesus, he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And it echoes a later line from Paul that says, as much as it is possible with you, live peaceably with everyone. But if you're trying to imagine how Paul understands the relationship between God and country, you can't stop at verse seven. You got to keep reading. And really, you should read the entirety of the letter to the Romans and his other letters. But just begin by considering these last few verses we read. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant, and whatever other commands there might be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. 
That, in a nutshell, is how Paul understands ultimate authority. Like John, he knows that God is love, and Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's love. If you're going to follow a law, it has to be a law that allows you to love your neighbor. Just a few verses later, Paul writes in chapter 14, For none of us lives to ourself alone, and none of us dies to ourself alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Life is not lived in a vacuum. You don't live life for yourself. It's lived for Christ, and it's lived with others. And the rules of order and government can be a very good thing in helping us live that life, but we can only celebrate and affirm the laws of the land when they allow us to love God and neighbors more. Laws that stifle our ability to offer love are ones that we must work to change. You know, it's a bit ironic that Paul is the one offering this reflection. Because Paul used to go by a different name, Saul. And his namesake started this whole navigating the relationship between God and country mess. It used to be a lot easier for the Israelites. In 1 Samuel, that Kathy just read a moment ago, and we considered with our children, they saw all their neighboring communities, the Israelites did, and they said, we want to be like them. We want a king. We, we, we've defeated these people. We're next to these people, and we want a king to rule over us. And Samuel's like, no, you don't. We have a theocracy, which means God is our king. Our religious leaders help us interpret what God says, but we don't have to have a ruler over us because we depend on the Lord. But the people decided that wasn't good enough. So they said, Samuel, give us the king. And he said, here's all the things that's going to happen. If you have a king, he's going to come and take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and his horses. And he's going to assign them to be commanders. He's going to take your harvest. He's going to um, make weapons of war and equipment with his chariots. He's going to take your daughters to be perfumers. He's going to take the best of your fields and vineyards. He's basically, it's not going to be a good thing. Why would you want this? When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. Samuel told them all these things, but still they pressed on. And ultimately, God relented, even though it wasn't what God wanted. That's a whole sermon in itself right there. We'll save it for a different day. But God told Samuel to appoint them a king, and his name was Saul. And he was terrible as a king. He was a madman. He became corrupt. And he did wrong by his people. His government took advantage. And when they gave their allegiance to something other than God, they reaped what they sowed. Let's not be a church that gives our ultimate allegiance or chief authority to anyone other than God. Yes, you should pay your taxes. Drive on the correct side of the road. Don't steal when you go to Publix. Follow the law, but don't look at the government or the law and say, how can I fit my view of God into that? Look at the systems and say, does it fit with who God is and how God speaks? Because as much as we might love our nation, it has been the voices of people crying out against injustice that have changed it for the better. You know, there's a time in our nation 
when the law said and the government affirmed that some people were only worth regarding as three-fifths of a person. There's a time when our nation did not think some people should be allowed to vote because of their race and others and because they weren't a man. But based on how we understand who God is and what God wants, we can celebrate that now our country and our God agree on these things. People of color are no longer counted as three-fifths of a person, and they and women can vote. And so we know that God continues to speak and to help us to enact things that are just and show love. But if humans can make unloving laws one time, we can do it again. Which means there might still be things in our country the need to be fixed. In fact, I bet you'd all agree that there probably are at least a few. Which is why, as Christians, we are not called to be silent when it comes to matters of state and politics. Jesus and the Bible never say, as Christians, we should separate our religious belief from how we vote or how we speak into the political landscape of our country. And Jesus himself surely never did that. The story of the relationship between God and country is complicated. It's complicated for a lot of reasons, in part because there are lots of things that Christians don't all agree on. So it's hard for us to speak with one voice, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't speak at all. We should never try to compartmentalize our faith to the times where we are in these four walls. As people who follow Christ, it's important to acknowledge that one allegiance is greater than the other, and that's okay. We unapologetically name that it is Jesus over everything. And in our relationship with Jesus, God makes us want to be better Americans and to do things in and for our country. So let's do that. Let's be a church that doesn't take our cues from politicians and then give them to our congregation to follow. Let's be a congregation that takes our cues from Jesus and lives them out in our political lives. Let's constantly remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit is in the business of uniting, not dividing. Any work that's done to try to divide us, we can name. That's what, what Christ wants. God wants us to find more common ground to stand on, not less Jesus is in the business of healing, not hurting. The thing that makes a Christian witness so important for this day and age is that we know in Jesus, God is reconciling all things. That's something unique about the Christian witness is that we don't just believe that God one day is going to reward just the people who did everything exactly right but that God is in the business of trying to bring all people together. Reconciliation, healing. This is the work of the church. Jesus brings us together. So let's be a church that spreads that good news all over this blessed nation and to all the other nations. Let's help God. Let's let God work in and through us to let his kingdom be known on earth as it is in heaven, because it's greater than any kingdom this world has ever known. Somebody asked me, why are we doing this series now? Why do we talk about politics in January, the beginning of the church? Because we know that this is probably going to be a relatively divisive year in our country. And we want to start it out setting the right tone as a congregation. 
that for us, it's Jesus over everything. And our prayer is that the witness of this congregation will be one that brings people together rather than divides us apart. This says, Jesus, how can you reconcile us? And how can we heal the world? May we be a church that brings about that reality in this world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.